has the Bible. Now, nobody else has that privilege. The, the, the Catholic Pope can claim that privilege. He doesn't have that privilege. Nobody else in the world except Jesus has the privilege because, as John shows us in John chapter 1, Jesus is the authoritative word of God. And so he's saying up front, I'm the one who can tell you what this means because it's my word. And so he's going to show us a deeper understanding of the law, a deeper interpretation. He's going to show us that any, impro- any proper interpretation and application begins with the questions of intent and motive. Not with where the Pharisees began, how do I obey now? The law says you shall not commit adultery. Now how do I not commit adultery? Which tends to be, if we're honest, how we tend to function with things. Somebody gives us a rule, we want to know how to follow the rule. Rather than saying, what does the rule reveal about the person who gives it? Or what's the intent of this rule? What's the intent of this law? Some of us don't like speed limit laws, right? I would fall into that camp. And a lot of times we approach speed limit laws, how? Either as suggestions or how do I not get ticket? What? Yeah. How far can I go across? Is it six, seven miles an hour? Depends on the officer, right? Or we say, you know, uh, this is an infringement on me. How can I interact with this law in such a way as to not be penalized for it? Rather than saying, thank God for speed limit signs because people can die. We, don't, we rarely ask the intent of the law in those moments. We tend to respond to the law as, how can I best respond so as not to be penalized? And so, Jesus is taking up the question of what's the Christian who is the Christian in relation to God's law and its demands? I mentioned this on the very first night when we entered into our study. This is that section of the sermon where Jesus is saying, how do we as Christians interact with the law? What's our relationship? What's our commitment to the law? And so he's going to show us. Now, he's, going to, he's not going to talk about every law. He's going to set a precedent on how we are to understand and respond to the whole law. And so you see there on your notes, Jesus' approach is the same in each instance. He does this six times. We're only going to get through three or attempt to get through three. He will introduce an Old Testament passage with a description. And then he will either cite or allude to a modern interpretation and application of it. And then he will give an authoritative pronouncement on what it actually means. You've heard it said from of old. This is what you've been taught. Here's what it actually means. And so that's kind of the formula that he follows. And so keep this question in mind as we consider this next section. Why must the character demands of the Beatitudes be true of the Christian for these things to make sense? If you just are struggling with anger, let's just say you have an anger issue, which a lot of people do, and you want to know what the Bible says about anger, so you you Google Bible and anger, and you come to Matthew 5, and you read, um, when Jesus says, I'm a murderer, I'm just angry. That's not helpful. Which is how a lot of people approach the Bible. Some of you may approach the Bible like that. But in the context of his sermon, remember, it's, we're in a place. We're, we, we are inside Jesus' sermon. So everything he said up until this point 
affects what we're about to read. And so the question we must keep in our minds, what does the essential character of the Christian have to say about these things? Because Jesus started with, who is the Christian? Now we're going to deal with these very human things. And so you see there in verse 21, Jesus said, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, You fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge, and the judge to the guard, and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. And so John picks this up later in the New Testament in 1 John and says, everyone who hates is a murderer. Maybe you've read that. But Jesus is equivocating here, hatred in our heart and physical murder. And so let's look at what he's saying. He references the sixth commandment in Exodus chapter 20, you shall not kill. But here in view is murder, not just killing. You see there, I noted the Hebrew language possesses seven words to reference killing. And here, the word used that Jesus is is using is the reference to premeditated murder. So he isn't talking about capital punishment. He isn't talking about warfare. He isn't talking about self-defense. He isn't talking about slaughtering an animal for food. He's talking about one human murdering another. And so Jesus, like Moses in Exodus 20 and later in Deuteronomy, he condemns the innocent taking of life, but then he presses it, he forces it, he forces us to see he's talking about something much, much deeper. He notes that unjustified anger is as murder. He says, everyone who's angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Now we need to... We need to confess right up front, righteous anger exists. It says numerous places in the Bible, God is angry. God is angry towards sin, towards sinners, towards Israel, towards those who would harm His people. And so it is possible for God to be angry without sin. It is possible for us to possess a measure of righteous anger, right? We can be righteously angry against murder, against abortion, against things that make God mad. We can have righteous anger, but often, if ever, our anger is never entirely righteous. There's always, usually, some self-serving aspect to our anger. I'm angry at you because you wronged me, so I want to wrong you back. Or I'm angry for this, that, or the other. I'm angry for a wrong reason, and most, more often than not, our anger is often unjustified. No doubt there's ang- there, there are reasons in the world to be angry. Most, more often than not, our anger is unjustified. But let me, let me explain to you what I mean. In the context, Jesus uses the word brother. 
Now we see it there, probably it's got a footnote there. It says, some manuscripts insert without cause. And so I've brought that in because I think that fits the context. We can be angry with our brothers sometimes, rightfully so. And that wouldn't fit the context of what Jesus is saying. I think that's what, he, that's what he's referring to. Without cause or wrongly oriented anger. And the word brother there is most likely a reference to mankind in general. That word is the Greek word adelphoi. You have it there. You know it now. I'll quiz you in a couple weeks. So get it down. That's used in the New Testament as a reference to kind of mankind in general. Jesus is not just talking about your sibling relationship. He's talking about mankind. And so, in, inside of that though, who is Jesus talking to in the sermon? You remember? He's talking to his disciples. Remember, it says he went up on the mountain and his disciples came to him. Now, no doubt the crowds are there too, but Jesus is speaking specifically, he's teaching specifically his disciples. And so it's particularly wrong for Christians to be unjustly angry or harbor anger against a fellow Christian. It's particularly wrong for unjust, unsanctioned anger to exist inside the church. It is wrong for a member of the household of God to be upset wrongly with another member who has been forgiven by God. We oftentimes fail to remember that when I am angry with you, I'm angry with you because you've wronged me, and I failed to apply the gospel in that moment, which would say, God has already forgiven you for what you did to me. I just haven't gotten there yet. God has already forgiven you for what you did to me, and in this moment, I'm just failing to apply that. It's particularly wrong inside the church. And so we must ask, what's murderous about anger? All of us experience anger every day, more than likely, in various measures. Some of us get really angry really fast. Some of us are slow to anger, but no doubt we get to the anger. Some of us get angry over very simple things. Some of us can can be very patient in some areas of our life, but then explode at home in ways that we wouldn't do in public. And so what's so murderous about anger? What's Jesus talking about? He says, well, when we are inappropriately angry with people, we take their identity and their value. Now that's new. I'm not thinking about when I'm angry with you, that I am devaluing you as a person. I'm not thinking consciously when I'm angry with you that I am stripping you of your identity. I'm not thinking that when I am angry with you in an unjust way that I am defaming God's image in you. But you see there, we attempt to take their identity and their value as God's creatures away from them. Which really manifests itself in murder. That's ultimately what murder is. I am going to take your identity away by ending your life. And we are participating in a form of that when we hate, when we are angry, when we hang on to that anger. 
So the righteous person is expected not only to avoid committing physical murder. That should be a given, by the way. We should not physically murder people. But not only is that to be true of the righteous person, but we are to rid ourselves and our relationships of hate and anger. Now, how many of you think about your relationships like that? Not just I'm trying not to be angry, but I want to rid all of my relationships of hate and anger. Think about your relationship with your family. Whatever your family is comprised of, a spouse or children or extended family or co-workers or friends. The goal of the Christian, because of the gospel, is to make sure anger, especially unjust, unrighteous, unsanctioned anger, does not exist in those relationships. Because it's a failure to apply the gospel. God has already forgiven them for that. They are totally restored in Jesus for that. So who am I to withhold forgiveness? When we harbor anger against a fellow Christian, we are saying with our actions, Jesus' sacrifice wasn't enough. When we harbor anger against a fellow Christian, what we are saying by our actions is, I do not regard you as worthy of forgiveness. Jesus has forgiven you, but I do not regard you as worthy of my forgiveness. And so Jesus says, this is the kind of person that's liable to judgment. And the implication here is one who is liable to judgment as if one has murdered. Now, thoughts or questions on that? Is anybody trying to figure out how not to be angry? I mean, Jesus is not settling for our typical approach to the law. Because all of us, I hope, would say, I've never physically murdered somebody. But, unless Jesus takes us there, we're probably not going to say, but I really need to think through my hatred of people. I really need to think through my anger. I really need to think through whether my anger towards this person is just before the eyes of God. Or, how often do we ask ourselves when we're angry, God, is it okay for me to hang on to this? Because what ends up happening, you can tell me if I'm wrong. I'm not, but you can tell me. (laughs) What ends up happening is we turn our anger towards other people into an idol. We begin to worship that anger rather than God. We begin to bow down to that anger rather than bowing down to God and letting Him deal with that anger. We hang on to it because we think we are right in it. And we don't let the Bible, speak into it. God, what would you say about this? And so Jesus goes on to say, so if you are, uh, I'm sorry, I missed the verse. He says, whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. Whoever insults, or that word there, rakah, is liable to counsel. It translates empty-headed. Whoever says to his brother, you are empty-headed, is liable to the council. So the word insult here implies something vulgar or something an angry person would spout off at someone. So, you know whether it's true of you or not. When you get angry, do you say things you wouldn't normally say? A lot of people do. This is that person who's in a rage, who's uncontrolled, 
who doesn't discipline their words, who's not thinking of building up that person in the image of God and of valuing their inherent worth because they are a creature made in God's image, this is the person who's just going to get that lick in. So they're going to say, they're going to insult however they would. It was particularly offensive in Jewish culture. It's a term that stripped a person's identity away while replacing it with something vulgar or less than human. You see on your notes there, it's akin to particular racial slurs used in our own culture. This is not just a random insult. This is a very pointed, vulgar, identity-removing insult. And perhaps you know what I mean. It's an insult that is meant to demean. And the council here, Jesus is referring to the highest legal Jewish council. If you insult your brother, if you say something that intentionally strips them of their identity and demeans them, then just as a murderer should go before the council for legal judgment, so too will you. He's explaining how the law works. Well, then he goes on. He says, And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So you see there, this is an insult with moral implication. It means something akin to moron, obstinate. It's another word that stripped identity. Jesus takes the punishment further here saying that such people will face judgment through hell. The valley of Gehenna in Jerusalem was a valley where they burned trash. They would, there's this valley, they would just put it all out there and, and kind of just constant burn to, to get rid of the trash and That's what he's referencing. To the fires of Gehenna is a reference to hell. And so his point is that man is not merely accountable to men. When you murder, if you murder someone here, you are accountable to the law of the land. And you will face the judgment in a just society that's operating rightly. A murderer will face the judgment of the law of the land. But Jesus is saying, that's not ultimately who you're accountable to. If you murder another person, you have infringed upon God's property, thus you are ultimately accountable to God. In the same way, just as murder strips someone of their identity, your unjust anger strips someone of their identity, and so you are also liable to God as a murderer. Man cannot adequately deliver the wrathful punishment of God. Whatever we can do to a person here to punish sin pales in comparison to God pouring out His wrath eternally. A sin against an infinite God isn't a one and done kind of thing. A sin against an infinite God demands an infinite punishment. And so Jesus was saying, you aren't thinking nearly strongly enough about what it means to be angry. You're too busy boasting about the fact that you've never murdered someone when you are so busy hating each other that you have no idea that you'll be held to the same account. And so he goes on to say, so if you're offering your gift at the altar and the the images of the temple, if you're in the temple offering your gift for the forgiveness of your sin... And there remember that your brother has something against you. Leave your gift and go and be reconciled. 
So there's a few things to note. Anger has an effect on our worship. Maybe you've known someone in a congregation, maybe it's this congregation, that there has been unresolved anger for a period of time, and that person still is attempting to participate in the worship of the church. Not only is it bothering them, but if you know about it, it's bothering you. It's disrupting the life of the church, but it's also disrupting the worship of that individual. But know what Jesus says. If you realize someone has something against you, what's he say do? Go to them. Don't wait on them to come to you. He says the, the way the Christian responds, the way the gospel-centered person responds is to seek out that issue and deal with it themselves. Don't let any kind of dissension linger. It doesn't matter if the other person is in the wrong and you're in the right Deal with it for the sake of the gospel. And that takes humility. Well, then he points us to reconciliation. He says, go and be reconciled to your brother. Then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser on the way. Otherwise, you'll be turned over to the judge and put in prison. So, how do we know how do we know we've truly dealt with sin and no longer face God's judgment in this way? Because Jesus very clearly says, the Bible very clearly says, that if we are in Christ, we're new creations, right? 2 Corinthians 5, 17. It says, if we are in Christ, we no longer will stand before God under the judgment of sin. Well, we know it in that we go and seek reconciliation as soon as it's needed. That's the response of the Christian. If you know you need to be reconciled with your brother or your sister, you don't let that linger. That's a worldly response. A gospel response is to say, I can't have this because it's an, it's an offense against God primarily. But it's also tension and sin between two members of the family of faith, which is offensive enough to God. And so I'm going to go. We don't let it linger. We do not go about our worship and religious activities knowing that a broken relationship exists. Jesus is showing us that we can often give ourselves a pass thinking, well, I didn't actually murder that person. I didn't actually end their life. So I'm good. I only thought about it. I didn't actually act on it. The, the thought was just in my mind. It didn't go anywhere beyond there. And Jesus is showing that we have misunderstood the law. Someone who is poor in spirit. Someone who is mourning over their sins. Someone who is hungering and thirsting for righteousness. Someone who has been filled and satisfied. This is the kind of person that reconciles. I'll explain more in just a moment. But with the court scenario, he says, while you're on your way with your accuser, Jesus is elaborating on the type of reconciling person the Christian is to be. Instead of fighting things out in court, the Christian should seek to settle things in a manner that not only deals with the issue, but overcomes that anger and establishes friendship. Now, I don't know if you've ever been to court. I hope you haven't. Uh... Paul speaks about it in 1 Corinthians, that we shouldn't go to court. It's a, it's a bad testimony about the gospel. 
when two, when two people go to court, especially two Christians go to court, what they're saying is, God can't work this out. I need this sinful, broken justice system to work it out. And really what they're saying is, I'm not getting my way. And so Jesus says, reconcile with your accuser on the way, because if you get there, it's only going to end poorly. Only going to end poorly. So the mention of the prison highlights our inability to truly reconcile on our own. Rarely, if ever, maybe you've seen a Judge Judy case or something, I don't know. Rarely do two people in a courtroom setting who are fighting over something end by hugging and becoming friends based on the verdict. Somebody gets what they want or partially what they want and the other person walks out full of hate, feeling wronged, feeling like they got gypped. The courtroom is not a scenario typically where reconciliation happens or where reconciliation is even in the mind. So Jesus' question or his point is rhetorical. He's saying, how is it that a prisoner earns money to pay his way out of prison? If you end up going all the way to court with your accuser and you get thrown in prison until the last penny's paid, guess what you're not doing in prison? Earning any money by which to pay your way out. So you're going to die in that prison. And what Jesus is saying is that when we harbor anger, when we are unjustly angry with our brothers and sisters, when we never deal with that, we actually end up dying in it. Because without God, true reconciliation can never happen. Without God, I'm never going to want to be reconciled with you. Apart from the gospel, I don't really care about you. And that's not only going to create distance between us, it's actually going to cause me to start dying. You've probably met somebody who's just perpetually angry. They're just never happy. I've dealt with that in my life. Anger is not one of those uplifting kind of things. It will zap the life out of you. Unreconciled anger, Jesus says, is the equivalent of murder. So just as a prisoner can never earn money in prison to repay what he has stolen or what he owes, a murderer can never give back the life that he takes. So we begin to see that fulfilling the law's command of do not murder is not accomplished simply by avoiding legal homicide. We can't just fulfill the law by saying, hey, I've never killed anybody. I've only thought about it. I've never acted on it. I don't even own a gun. That kind of stuff doesn't cut it. That kind of stuff is a misunderstanding of the law. Jesus reveals that the intent of the law is to nurture healthy relationships. So let's just flip that for a minute. We've been going down this negative road. And now Jesus is saying, I'm actually concerned that you live life in a healthy, happy way together. I'm actually concerned that your relationships with your brothers and sisters in the faith and with the rest of the world are good, are healthy, are mature, that your relationships are life-giving. We get so caught up on these sinful, petty, angry things and we end up leading lives and having relationships that have no life and no fulfillment. And Jesus is saying, it's because you're, you're, you're trying to carry out the law in a way it was never meant to be carried out. Just like with a speed limit sign. If the only thing we do is try to figure out how to not break that law, we're only going to be angry anytime we pass that sign or a cop. 
But if we start thinking, this is for the insurement of safety and the freedom of the roads, when we see those signs, you're going to be like, thank God I can drive. You see a police officer, you're going to say, thank goodness there are men and women who give of themselves to protect these roads, to, to make sure to the best of their ability we are safe. Jesus is saying, your approach to the law has not just been wrong, but it's killing you. And it's killing everybody else. So when we avoid those difficult teachings like this and choose rather on our own, we're not only violating the Bible, specifically Deuteronomy where Jesus says, today I've set before you life and death, choose life. We're in that moment, we're saying, I'd rather have death, God. I'd rather just choose to be angry. I'd rather choose to make this person pay me back however I see them fit for them to pay me back rather than choosing life. So here's where the necessity of the Beatitudes become clear. True disciples not only avoid murder, physical murder, but are transformed so that they do not strip away the personhood and identity of others through defamation or anger. And they continuously produce reconciliation in offended relationships. True disciples not only avoid murder, because murder's bad, but they avoid murder and breathe life into broken relationships. That's a very unfortunate typo. Sorry about that. The, the poor in spirit do not think more highly of themselves than they should. So they will not be inappropriately angry or defame another person. If I am not poor in spirit, as Jesus said, if I am not being emptied of all that's natural within me, if God isn't performing that work in me, then I probably am going to be angry with you. I probably am going to get offended over very easy things. I probably am going to hold what you said on Facebook against you. So true disciples will treat others with dignity. They will show honor. They will show respect. They will respect others' inherent God-given worth. And they'll do that by maintaining healthy relationships. Because that's what honors God. So, just throw this out there. You can be specific if you want it to be specific. It can be very general. What are some very real applications of this? Not all at once. <laughs> mm-hmm. So I talk about this with couples in marriage. Both premarital counseling and once the marriage is going on, they're having, they're having struggles. We talk about this. If we are not being transformed by the gospel, like Jesus says in the Beatitudes, then my anger isn't going to be shepherded by the gospel. I'm not going to respond to you in a gospel way if I'm not being indwelled and controlled by the gospel. 
So when we think about Ephesians 5, when it, the husband is being told, love your wives as Christ loves the church, that husband will never do that if the Beatitudes aren't first true. When the wives are told, submit in everything to your husband, they will never do that if the Beatitudes aren't first true in their lives. It's not that just I need to decide to be a better leader or I need to decide to be more submissive or this, that, and the other. It's nothing I decide to do. It's the work of God in my life through the gospel that I then have the privilege of applying deep down specifically to some of these nitty-gritty things. Like, you made me mad. And I'm not going to sit around and wait on you to figure out that you made me mad and let's make it right then. I'm going to go to you and confess I'm angry with you. When's the last time you did that? I sat on an ordination council Monday night for a young pastor, and typically how those work is we grill that person for a while, and then at the end, we offer some pastoral wisdom. And one of the other pastors that was on the council said, when's the last time you said, I'm sorry? When's the last time you said, I'm sorry? When's the last time you realize I have wronged someone, intentionally or unintentionally, and I have sought out reconciliation? Jesus says, don't get hung up on this foolishness of thinking you've kept the law because you've never murdered. That's how we get comfortable with the law. Jesus is saying, nope, it's far more radical than that. I actually want you guys to be healthy. I actually want you to flourish. I actually want you to deal with sin in a very helpful way that builds you up. Well, then he moves on to talk about something else. He says, verse 27, You've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off, throw it away. It's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. I'm going to go ahead and read on verse 31. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her, give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that not that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So let's talk about these in order. Jesus quotes here from the seventh commandment while alluding to the tenth commandment. So he says, you shall not commit adultery. And then he says, if you look, that is to covet, if you look and desire something you don't have, that's the tenth commandment. Don't covet what your neighbor has. So adultery was considered one of the most serious offenses in the Old Testament because it broke that relationship that was a reflection of God and His people. And we see that later. Paul picks up on that in Ephesians 5.32. He says about marriage, I'm saying it refers to Christ in the church. And so when adultery happens, it is an offense against that human relationship that is meant to display how God relates to His people. Inside of a healthy marriage where the husband is leading his wife and both are 
flourishing. That's a picture to the world. It's a testimony to the world, even in its imperfect ways, that God saves. And so when that is broken by something so heinous like adultery, God hates that. says it in Malachi that God hates divorce. And God hates the breaking of that covenant. In the Old Testament, adultery involved sexual intercourse with mutual consent between two people, one of whom was married. And Leviticus 20 tells us that the death penalty was required for both. If you were caught in adultery, you were put to death. Which is why in John chapter 8, we read about the woman caught in adultery and she's drugged into the court and thrown before Jesus and says, Jesus says, who among you will cast the first stone? She knew the law, but he was also revealing something deeper about the law. So therefore, most understood this law as the physical avoidance of extramarital sex. As long as I don't cross that particular boundary, I'm good. I ain't murdered anybody. I hadn't stepped out on my marriage in any way. I'm good. Two down, eight to go. But Jesus' pronouncement both affirms the Old Testament commitment to the unity of marriage, but it also takes on or takes it to its deepest meaning, which again the Pharisees have missed. Jesus says it's not enough to maintain physical unity. It's not enough for you just to have been physically faithful in your marriage. The purity of marriage, as Jesus talks about it, includes exclusive devotion to one another with every aspect of our lives. So if you are in this room and you are married, the unity of marriage means that you are exclusively devoted to your spouse in every way. This commitment excludes even wanting another person or giving oneself in any way to another person. And so Jesus says thus, looking at a woman or a man who is not your spouse, not just is lustful, he says that breaks the bond of oneness that you and your spouse have. You think about that. That is heavy teaching. We're over here thinking, well, I've never actually done what I've thought about. I'm good. And Jesus is saying the fact that you've thought about it means that you've already broken that commitment. Well, the principle behind this teaching lies in the relationship between God and His people. Ezekiel, if you've ever read that prophet, he graphically condemns Israel for spiritual adultery. He uses some very very hard-hitting language and metaphors. When a man even looks with a desire at a woman, he has rejected his wife and given himself to her. If you're a man like I am, that's terrifying. It's the same thing, same is true for women. If you even look with, if you even look at another man with that desire, you've given yourself to that man. Well, how is this? Jesus is saying that lust originates not in behavior. We don't move into lust once we, once we decide to act on it. He's saying it originates in our hearts. It starts in our hearts. It starts in our minds. 
That's the core of who we are. You see, in the Old Testament, the heart and the mind are considered one thing. And so when it originates inside of me, it doesn't matter whether it actually comes to be part of how I behave and part of how I act. It's inside of me. It lives inside of me. And so adultery is not only a physical act, but a mental engagement in such acts. It's an inner issue and condemns the person who rests complacently on our behavior. So the person who says, hey man, I'm good. I've never done that. I've thought about it, never done it, I'm good. That in and of itself is a condemnation. Jesus is saying, oh, here you are again, thinking that you're good because you've kept the law. You've never violated the physical aspect of the law. And he's saying you haven't considered it deeply enough. So in other words, there are some who boast that they've never once cheated on their spouse or stepped outside of their marriage but seem to have no issues with pornography or with fantasizing sexually about other people. And some people trust so fully in what they've never done physically, they have no concern about what lives and lurks in their hearts. We're so boastful that we've never done certain things, and yet so complacent sometimes about what's in here. Nobody knows about it, So I'm good with it. Well, how does the necessity of the Beatitudes bear down on this? We see, true disciples of Jesus not only shun physical acts of adultery, they are so completely committed to God's purpose for marriage that they have eyes and hands only for a spouse. And they discipline every sexual thought and action to be singularly focused on their spouse. Now, we need to be careful. This is not a law. We don't want to say anybody who falls into the lust adultery category is not a Christian. Because unfortunately, we're living in a day and age where I think God is bringing to bear First Peter 4 on the house of God. That judgment begins in the house of God. And we are seeing leader after leader after leader fall into sexual sin. So it's this issue, like divorce, is not the unpardonable sin. It's heavy, it's hard-hitting, it's part of our lives, but we need to reckon with it honestly. We don't need to just say, well, that's uncomfortable, I don't want to talk about that. We'll just all agree, not, don't, don't talk about that. That's not Jesus' approach here. Jesus hits us right where it hurts. But He hits us there with a purpose, and that's to help us see what's true, where true life is. You see, some of us get so caught up in thinking, like the speed limit, we think the speed limit is limiting us. And we think God's laws about sexuality are limiting us. So I think as long as I behave outwardly, I can have these fantasies or whatever goes on in my mind inwardly. And Jesus is saying, no. No. And so what Jesus is saying is that the disciple not only rejects physical lust and adultery, we also reject it inwardly. That we seek by all of our power and all the help of the Holy Spirit to give ourselves totally mind, body, spirit, soul, mind, and acts to our spouse. And furthermore, to mourn over the sinfulness of the world, as Jesus says in the Beatitudes, will have, will give us an eternal perspective on our relationships. You see, people who fall into adultery 
always regret it on the back end. Now, they may choose to follow through with it eventually. I've known people who have maintained this secret relationship on the side. It gets exposed, grief, brokenness, and then they still run off with that person and throw away the life they had. But it always costs so much. And if I am mourning over sin as a believer, I'm going to hate sin. I'm going to hate the effects of sin. I'm going to avoid that with all that I am because I don't want sin to destroy my life. I don't want sin to destroy your life because I'm focused not on sin. I'm focused on God's holiness. I'm focused on us having healthy, life-giving relationships. I'm treasuring God over sexual fulfillment. And so he goes from there, he carries this idea about the sanctity of sexuality right into divorce. Divorce has been an issue as long as humanity has been alive. And in this third statement, Jesus carries on the teaching about marriage and alludes to what Moses taught on marriage. Archaeology writings have made it very clear divorce was very prevalent in the ancient world. It's not some kind of modern phenomenon. People haven't just started falling out of love. They've been doing it for a long time. And so, God instituted a regulation through Moses which served three purposes. God never condones divorce. God never says, I'm okay with it. He says, very clearly, I hate it. Malachi says, I hate, God says, I hate divorce. But if we understand this regulation, it served three purposes. The first one was to protect the sanctity of marriage by guarding it against indecency. God says, you can't dissolve a marriage for whatever. I understand there are some things that humans do that wreck a marriage beyond repair. And as a pastor, I have unfortunately seen that more than I would like. And I will continue to see it. Some of you have probably seen those things. There are just some things people do that wound a relationship beyond repair. But God says, don't think of marriage so frivolously that anything becomes grounds for divorce. Well, the second thing was to protect a woman from a husband who might simply send her away for whatever reason. See, the Pharisees were teaching in one of their schools of thought that if a wife dropped a plate for her husband, that he could divorce her. And God says, that's, that's wrong. Not only is divorce wrong, but now you're just being arrogant and totally self-serving, and you're going to wound your wife for something silly. And so he institutes it for that. You can't divorce over something like that. And then lastly, it was to document that a woman's status, that she was, in fact, legally divorced. She wasn't a harlot. She wasn't a known adulteress. That she was a wholesome woman in that society, albeit that she was divorced. And so it was a... uh, a regulation for her protection. Now, those things don't always compute over to our society. We live in a different type of culture. But that's what they were for. And by Jesus' time, this regulation had come to be treated as the law itself, rather than, what's the intent of the law? People were saying, well, I can get divorced. Instead of saying, what does God want? And so I said, Jesus affirms that God hates it. Jesus allows for divorce on the basis of the Greek word porneia. It's where we get our word pornography. 
And this is any sinful activity which intentionally divides a marital relationship. Anything that so devastatingly divides that relationship, and the word lends itself to that which is sexual in nature, Jesus says, is a grounds for divorce. Now, it's not a blanket statement. I want to say that right up front. I'm not expounding the full weight of what the Bible says on divorce. It's very briefly talking about the intentions of the law when it comes to this issue. So over and against something frivolous, even on some very difficult things, Jesus maintains that the purity of the marital bond is always primary. Divorce is never the only option. No marriage is beyond repair. Because what we say in that moment is that God can't fix this. When Ezekiel is standing before the valley of dry bones, what do you think he was thinking? It's a bunch of dry dead bones. And then God asked him, can these bones live? What would you have said? Probably not. What did God or what did Ezekiel say? Do you know? <laughs> Only you know, God. Only you know. In the throes of a marriage that's coming apart, most of the time people will say, or the spouses involved will say, This is beyond repair. You've wounded me too far. It's like they're standing in that valley and saying, there's no life left in those things, no matter what. Instead of saying, God, can this thing live? God can take two people, two spouses, who have wounded each other far beyond regular emotional repair, who hate each other, and He can breathe the life of romance back into them if He wants to. And so Jesus is saying, just because it's permitted, it's not the intent of the law. You get, you get my pastoral note there. This is in my notes. This does not make divorce, whether biblically permitted or not, the unforgivable sin. If you have divorce in your past or in your future, the gospel has more than enough grace for you. We're living in a culture where well over half of the marriages have dissolved for whatever reason. And that doesn't mean that you have a scarlet A on your chest or a scarlet D. It means that you are a sinner in need of grace, just like the rest of us. And yet, for some reason, we have treated the issue of divorce as if it's an unpardonable sin. When we don't treat things like anger, we are comfortable with gossip while we are ostracizing people in our church because they're divorced. So, how do the Beatitudes apply? Well, you see, true disciples not only respect the purity of the marital relationship, but they have God's values for the original design of marriage and are unreservedly committed to its permanence and its sanctity. Do you know who's the best counselors for a couple who are in, on the brink of divorce? A couple who are deeply in love. A couple who understand the gospel. 
And I tell couples this all the time as they are approaching marriage. If all of your hopes lie in your spouse's ability to keep you satisfied, I'd stop if I were you. If all of your hopes for this marriage, if all of your hopes for this romance are all put in the basket of, they make me feel a certain way, you are headed for a train wreck. Because God doesn't, doesn't give spouses so that we are just fulfilled emotionally and sexually and physically. God gives us spouses as an avenue to know Him. See, my wife's role in my life primarily is to help me know and love God more. And if I'm trusting that God is infinite and that He is going to satisfy me forever, which is what Psalm 1611 says, that in God's right hand are pleasures forevermore. If that's where I'm seeking my pleasure, then my wife can do almost anything. Well, she can do anything. And that does not affect my ability to be pleased with God. She can be as kind to me as she wants and God's still good. She can be as hateful to me as she wants and God's still good. Or vice versa. I don't mean to paint myself as a good one. I could be as hateful to her as I, as I want to be, and yet God would still treat her with grace and with kindness and would still please her in a way that I never could, even on my best day. But you see, also, those who are meek will not impose their wills on others. They understand God's purposes for marriage and will never seek a divorce. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians 7, it never says that we can seek divorce. It says that we should live in an understanding way with the hopes that salvation will come. It says that we should lead and live gospel-centered lives. So, the question here is not, can I obey the law? Because the answer is no, you can't. The question is of internal and external discipleship. Now, when you think about the word discipleship, is this what you think about? That's good. We all need to be like Tom. Because typically what we think about when it comes to discipleship, we think about a class or a skill or going on a mission trip rather than saying discipleship begins in the heart. Discipleship begins with me getting up every morning and preaching the gospel to myself. The the Discipleship begins with that deep application, that deep thorough application of the gospel at every area of my life. So you see that the reality of the life of life in the kingdom of God affects both our internal heart attitudes and our external actions. They're related. They can't be broken. That relationship cannot be broken. Our internal attitudes are the foundations of how we behave. Our actions flow out of our hearts. So therefore, our discipleship to Jesus often calls us to focus more on the internal nature of our hearts more than on our behaviors. Do you know who else is saying that same thing? Mark. Jesus is saying, y'all are so hung up on what I'm doing. Y'all are so hung up on the fact that I'm doing these fancy miracles. You Pharisees are so hung up on your obedience and your laws and all of this, you've missed the nature of the kingdom, which is internal transformation. You can't choose that. You can't work your way into that. That has to be something that God does in us. Discipleship begins with our hearts. And so the virtues of the Beatitudes provide that essential foundation. 
we look at the Beatitudes and we ask, what kind of person is Jesus saying the Christian is that's all necessary when it comes to discipleship? And yet sometimes we think that the discipling process will somehow make us Christians. Sometimes we think if I just get in the right lane, if I just get on the right bus, that'll make me a Christian. I'll start acting like a Christian if I can get around other Christians. When really what Jesus is saying is you'll never be a Christian, you'll never love righteousness, you'll never understand the law until God causes it to live in your heart. That's why he says, Paul says in Ephesians 2, verse 1, You were dead in your trespasses and sins, following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, that is Satan, enslaved to the passions of the mind, And I know what verse 4 says. But God made us alive with Christ. There's two players there. There's me, the dead man, who's enslaved to all that's natural within me, which Jesus says what's natural within me is anger, lust, adultery, murder, divorce, all of that stuff is natural within me. And not only do I like it, I'm enslaved to it. But he says, but God made us alive together with Christ. That He's blessed us richly. And that's why he says, it's by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing, it's the gift of God, so that you can't boast. Do you know why he says that? Because we like to boast. And so Jesus meets us in those moments when we come to the law and say, God, look how much I've done. Look how good I am. When we look in the mirror and say, you know, i got some of these, these things lurking in my heart, but on the whole, I'm pretty good. People think I'm, I'm doing all right. People look to me as a, as a Christian example in the church. And Jesus says, you have yet to understand the law. So how does the Christian respond and relate to the law? Let's just say you're out at Walmart tomorrow and somebody asks you that, hey, what's the law about? What do you tell them? Either you're being quiet or I've done a very poor job. Both are, off, both are options. You see, the law is about life. The law is about life. The law is about knowing God rightly through Jesus Christ. The law is about not obeying our way to God. Not whatsoever. The law is about knowing Christ has so reconciled me to God that my salvation radically overwhelms everything I am naturally. And the Holy Spirit breathes new life into me. Well, like I said... I have probably been less than thorough and uh, could have done parts of that better. But I hope, I hope the thrust is clear. Jesus is saying, let's not settle for our natural response to the law because our natural response to the law is death. Let's actually be serious about the gospel. And the gospel is the good news of Jesus Christ, but it's so much more. This is 
This is deep discipleship. This is that kind of discipleship that transforms, that makes us new. Uh, I'm going to pray for us, and then we'll, we'll conclude. If you know of somebody on the prayer list, just come down here and let me know. Or if you want to talk about something I said, I'll be available for that too. But let's, let's pray together. Lord, thank you for the Holy Spirit who helps us in our weakness. Thank you, Holy Spirit, that you intercede for us before the Father in a language that's too deep for words when we can't pray for ourselves. Thank you, Lord, for saving us when we were enslaved to our passions. We didn't even know which way was forward. Thank you, King Jesus, for teaching us these things, even when they are hard to swallow. Thank you for showing us that the path to you is not us trying to be religious and to be well-behaved and to be ritually clean. Help us, Lord, to have the attitude of Paul in Philippians 3, that whatever I gain, Lord, I count that as loss. And not just that I'm going to set it aside, Lord, but Paul's heart was thinking I could do it on my own was harmful to me. It's harmful when we think God, that we can get ourselves to you on our own. Lord, I pray that you would take these things that we have studied and that you would cause them to come alive in our hearts, that you'd breathe life into them in our hearts and our minds, that you would help us to see King Jesus, that the law is about life, that you want us to have life and have abundant life together. That you want us to have healthy, life-giving relationships instead of being bogged down with things like anger and lust and things that are less than the goodness which you offer. Thank you for time to gather around the Word. Lord, we love you. We praise you. We, we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would come and help us understand these things. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Like I said, if you all want to talk to me about anything or let me know about a prayer list, just come on down and let me know. If not, I hope you guys have a great evening.